Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw, and that would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And when you introduce this next gentleman, this Hall of Famer, all you got to say is the match. Everyone knows what you're talking about. WrestleMania three, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat versus Randy Macho Man Savage. Been called the greatest match of all time. And he is one of the greatest people of all time. Certainly one of the greatest champions of all time. He's our friend, Ricky Steamboat. Dragon, welcome to the show. JBL, it's good to see you. I figured out how you stay so young looking. How's that? I want to know the color that you use in your hair. <laughs> Hey well, Ricky, when I, when he, I buy, when I get he the has, he has secrets that he he won't tell. But I called him when we very first started doing this show. I called him and he had to confess to me what he does. I mean, yeah, you know, he he's just not a pretty boy by accident. You know, it it's a like Terry Funk used to say, it's a chemical world, brother. It's a it's chemical. A, it's world. A, you know, whenever he says something, he always repeats it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a chemical world, world, brother. It's a chemical world. He always, uh, he always says it twice. That's I'll it. Be like, well, uh, Rick, Ricky, well, welcome, welcome, welcome in, man. We've been, we've been wanting to get you on, and we've been trying to build an audience fit for you to come on, and we're we're getting to that point, man. And uh, you know, uh, it's so great to see you. You know, before the show, you was telling us a little bit about your heritage and all that stuff. I know. I got some questions on how that you know now now I kind of know because of the pre-story, but kind of fill in how how the the dragon all started and Ricky Steamboat went from Richard Blood to, to Ricky Steamboat. All right, real quick, uh, my dad was in the army. He joined 1945, right towards the end of the Second World War. He met my mom in Japan in 49. They got married in 50, and uh, I came along in 53, but. Um, when he met her in Japan, uh, it was on a blind date, and uh, my mom did not know how to speak English, and my dad didn't know how to speak Japanese, and it was a blind date. I guess I guess they headed off, up, uh, ended up getting married, and when he came back to the States, he was stationed at West Point, New York, and uh, I was born at West Point at the academy there in uh, 1953, so I know... Eddie Graham gave me the Ricky Steamboat name. I don't know if you know that story, ja uh, Gerald. Yes, yes, I do. I was there. I was. That's right. You were I was, sitting I was in the office. I walked in and I said, Rick, Ricky, Ricky <laughs> I want to show you something. And Gerald would know this, this guy. I don't know. Can you? All right, let me let me take it out. At uh, Ricky's uh, uh, Sammy Steamboat. That's Sammy Steamboat. Yep. Wow. I recognize the ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I walked in the office, nineteen seventy six, and um, Eddie looked at me, and he, you know, my real name is my last name is Blood, and he goes. Uh, I started the business 1975, went through Vern Gagne's camp. I was the hey, class. Ricky, Rick, Rick, how did you get from, uh, you were you were state champion at Gulfport or Gulf Breeze High School in St. Uh, Peter's. How did you get, did, was it military move again that you, you had to make a move to go to Minneapolis? No, or I, did was, uh, 
I li- I was uh, I went to Bogusaga High School in St. Pete, and uh, at the time, I was dating a girl out of high school, and she went to Minneapolis to be a, a flight attendant for Northwest, and her roommate was Donna Ganya, <laughs> Vern's daughter. And so they got to be real close, being in this, you know, the roommates going through the, the, the school. And um, she, uh, her name was Maureen. She was invited over to the guy's house for dinner. And, you know, they just doing just talk, talk. And, you know, you got a boyfriend. She suggests, and what's he doing? What's his name? And um, uh, she said his name's Richard Blood. Well. All the way up in Minneapolis, Vern Gagne recognized the name. And she says, well, how do you how do you know that name? He says, well, Eddie told me that he's a pretty good amateur wrestler down in Florida. Because Richard Blood wrestled against Mike Graham in high school. Wow. I'll never forget I that. Know, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, Mike, uh, Mike was a senior and I was a sophomore. He was two years up on me. And we were in the district finals. You had to win district to go to state. And I'm, uh, we're in the finals, and I'm a sophomore. And, um, you know, to make it into the finals as a sophomore. So I'm standing in there in the squared circle, and I'm looking across. And over to my right, I see this man stand up and start yelling, Mike, you can beat him. Go. And he's got bandages on his head, you know, the white bandages on his head and the blonde hair. And I look over and I said, oh, my God, that's uh, that's Eddie Graham. And I'll tell you the story how I know how I know who he is. But he says, Mike, you can beat him, son. So I look up and I look at Mike and I know in the wrestling brackets, it's gossip. Right. His real last name. But, you know, for wrestling, Eddie has Graham, right? So I said, oh, my God, that's Eddie Graham's son. But I didn't know that when you're going through the brackets. Um, long story short, Mike beat me on points. He went on to state. And uh, my junior, senior year, I went on to state. So uh, now we're fast forward. 19, now, this was. This was 1969 when I was a sophomore. So fast forward, 1976 is when I'm in, in, uh, well, let me back up. 1975 is when I'm, uh, said that, um, this wrestling promoter up here, Vern Gagne remembers your name. How should, how, how could you forget the last name of blood? Right. <laughs> you know, blood. So, uh, he, he, uh, he, she said, Vern remembers you because of Eddie spoke highly of you following your amateur career. So, and as you know, the old timers were pretty big on amateur wrestlers. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, you and your brother, Jack. So um, never got the recognition in a college level. But, uh, you know, she told me that. And at the time I was selling door to door Kirby vacuum cleaners. <laughs> door to door Kirby vacuum cleaners. So wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This big jacked up bodybuilder is going to her door to door selling Kirby vacuum cleaners. I mean, these yes. housewives either had to be in love with you or scared to death. 
<laughs> oh God! I, you know, here it is in in Florida in the month. Uh, I did it for two years, and as you know, in, in the month of August, you're walking down up and you pick a neighborhood. You start pounding on doors. You're wearing a suit and a tie, and it's a hundred degrees. And you got your vacuum cleaner in one hand, you got your little briefcase in the other hand, and you're knocking on doors asking for a free demonstration. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I did it for two years, and this and it wasn't bad. At, you know, um, we were at that time, um, we were getting a hundred dollars a sale. So I would get, I would try to get three sales under my belt, like you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, maybe try and get one a day, make three or 400 bucks. And, uh, then on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you see me at the beach. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she told me that Vern had a wrestling school, a camp. And um, so he, he just said, hey, have him send me some pictures and, and you know, a bio resume. And so I, I did that in um, 1975. Uh, I got I got a, a starting date in November. I'll never forget November 16th, 1975. That was a starting date. And um, so a couple of months ahead of time, I. Uh, told my parents I was going to Minneapolis and going to go do this, uh, going to pro wrestling. And so I just threw clothes in the back of my car and drove up to Minneapolis and got a little studio apartment and, uh, showed up and Cosro Vaziri was our coach. <laughs> the iron sheet. Sheaky baby. Yeah. Sheaky he wasn't, baby. He, he wasn't the iron sheet at the time, but you know, I think he, you know, Vern brought him over. Ooh, maybe he was there maybe a year and a half, two years into Minneapolis from Iran, you know, and at one time he was the bodyguard to the Shah. He was a, a gold medal, medalist at the uh, Pan American Games. He was their national champion. Um, I think he took a bronze at the Olympics. You know, he was a pretty tough character. Soaking wet at that time, he was 185 pounds. And the first day, I'll never forget the first day of school, we had 16 guys show up. 16. And then it went Monday through Friday. It went from 10 in the morning till three in the afternoon. We never got in the ring one time, not once. Uh, uh, Cosro or the Sheik had us doing calisthenics for five hours. <laughs> um, we were in the basement of Burns office building and there were, uh, he had the top floor. He had the penthouse floor. Um, it was 20 stories. And the first thing uh, Cosro had us do was run the stairs now from the basement to the top it was 21 flights so we all did that and came back down and then Cosro paired us off according to our size and weight and uh, then he had us carry fireman carry your partner up 21 flights what was you weighing then Ricky huh what was your weight then uh I weighed in at about 230 so you were you were you're pretty jacked. Well, um, in correspondence with with uh, my girlfriend, um, I I was able to get about six months of lead time. So I was working out three times a week with the weights, and then I would go to St. Pete Beach three times a week and week and run in the sand. And uh, I picked a spot where I'd park my car and I'd run two and a half miles up to this pier and get a coffee. It'd be early in the morning and then run two and a half miles back to the car. And I did that three times a week. So 
you know, not a pat on the back for me, but I would say out of the 16 guys, I was the best cardio shape guy. Did you have any of those, uh, of the guys like Patera or any of those guys cross through, or was you in there basically, you, you made it basically through your own? Uh, they, they, uh, I never saw Flair. Now, Patera, Flair, um, Brunzel, and Greg Gagne, they were the, and even the, uh, and Cosro, they were the class before me. Okay. Um, I remember Patera coming down to the basement one time just to take a look, see. Um, Greg Gagne, of course, being Vern's son, he was down there all the time. Um, so after we got finished running the stairs, and then after we, uh, carried your partner up and you dropped him at the top and you ran back down, then he would carry you up and then run back down. Then you, then one of you would drop down to your hands and knees and your partner would grab your ankles. And then you had the wheelbarrow up on your hands, 21 flights. Wow. Oh and you, you get to the top and then you come down and then you switch and then you grab your partner's ankles and he would wheelbarrow up 21 flights on his hands it was oh my god it how was, many I had, made it? I, Ricky, we, out of 16 how many made it with the wheelbarrow up 21 flights of stairs uh everybody made it but like i said class was from 10 to 3 and there were guys that could make it up one or two flights and then they would collapse but but the sheik was so relentless, he, he would be yelling and screaming at him. And um, and if it just took one step at a time, he would he was re relentless until the guy made it to the top. So, you know, for that first week, it pretty much took almost five hours for us to do all our calisthenics and do the stairs uh, three times. And um, that was Monday through Friday. We had the weekend off. And I remember my face. I had so many red scuff marks on my face because we were in a um, fire fire escape stairwell with the cement floor uh, steps and my arms would give out and I would catch the corner of a step on my head or my cheek, you know, so I had raspberries all over my face. Um, the following week on a Monday morning, uh, four of us showed up. A, the dozen quit. They quit. <laughs> And the four guys, uh, me, uh, Buck Zumhoff, for you know his story, he's in jail. <laughs> and uh, Scott Irwin. Wild Bill's brother. Yes. And uh, he passed away because he had a, a cancerous tumor or something behind his eye and, and it went into his brain. And then the other guy was Jan Nelson. I know that name's not familiar to any of you guys, but was that Private Nelson, right? No, no, no. Uh, Jan Nelson was a Minnesota boy. His father owned a bar across the street from the University of Minnesota. Jan was a big boy. He was about six four, about two eighty. He was a power lifter. He was uh, third in the in the nation. And Jan passed away. He got into the business and uh, he was wrestling uh, for Vern. And um, the story that I hear is that he went to a Rolling Stones concert and um, OD'd um, in the sitting in the bathroom stall at the at, in Chicago at the concert, and that's where they found him, Jan Nelson. So, the uh, out of the four, you got one guy in jail, and then you got me. <laughs> <laughs> 
and the other two early deaths. <laughs> so, yeah, and so uh, when I came down to Florida in 1976, I walked in the office and Eddie Graham says, I remember you, kid, you know, when you were in high school, you wrestled Mike. He says, uh, Rick Blood's a great wrestling name, but he said, that's for heels, Blood. That's for heels. He said, I'd like to call you Ricky Steamboat. We had a guy here in the late 60s and through the uh, early 70s uh, that campaigned here. His name was Sammy Steamboat. He was from Hawaii. And um, I'm going to start putting your name out there, but I'm not going to call you his son. I'm going to start listing you as um, a nephew. You're the nephew of Sammy Steamboat. So I'll never forget first night. I went to the office on Tuesday. Wednesday night, we're in West Palm Beach. I'm the first match. I'm in the ring. I'm in the corner. They're doing old school announcing. The announcer's in the middle of the ring with the mic. And he announces, ladies and gentlemen, we have a substitute this evening taking the place of Dick Blood. Give it up for the nephew of the great Sammy Steamboat, Ricky Steamboat. And the crowd jumped out of the seats. They, I went like, Holy moly, what the, you know, prior to that, whenever they announced Dick Blood, um, when I worked for Vern up there in Minneapolis, uh, you know, I'd get beaten two or three minutes, you know, and I'd get a couple of claps out of a, uh, out of the house. But then when I went to Florida, just because of the name change, the fans, they must have loved Sammy dearly because they jumped out of their seats. So about a month later, Eddie pulls me back in the office and he says, son, you're getting a great response. And I said, well, it's not because of my work. I said, I'm just getting a rub off of Sammy Steamboat, the name. You know, that's the response, the reason. He says, well, anyway, he says, uh, I told him the story when I first went in the office. And um, when I was in high school in St. Pete, me and, the, me and the guys on the wrestling team from the high school would drive over to Tampa on Tuesday nights at the armory and um we'd sit there at front row with bogus egg bogus egg high school wrestlers you know on our on our jerseys right and we'd go we're the real deal you guys are a bunch of phony balonies you know we'd be sitting razzing them not knowing that five years later here i am right so uh uh eddie goes do you remember do you remember if uh, when Sam and I were wrestling tag teams? I said, yes, sir, I do. I said, you guys were the Florida tag team champions. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to team you and Micah, and it's going to be Steamboat and Graham all over again, second generation. And the following week on TV, we were in the ring with the Hollywood Blondes with Sir Oliver Humperdinck as their manager. And we wrestled to, I forget what the time limit was on TV. Uh, Gerald, do you remember what time limit was for TV in Florida? You had a 10-minute time limit, Gordon. And, uh, and we wrestled. And we, we wrestled the, unless you were the last match, it was TV time remaining. There you go. Right. And I remember some of the finishes, uh, before the finish would happen, they'd go off the air. Right. And then the following weekend, when they'd bring the, the new show, they'd bring up the the last part of that match, leave everybody sort of in suspense. I thought that was very cool. But anyway, we wrestled the Hollywood Blondes. All, Sir Oliver was their manager. And Mike and I wrestled them to a 10-minute draw on TV. And the next thing you know, we got Mike Graham and, Ste Graham and Steamboat wrestling against the Hollywood Blondes for the Florida Tag Team Championship. And all of a sudden, I'm in the main events. 
and I've, you know, been in the business three months. <laughs> were you ever worried, for- were you ever worried? Uh, because when I first broke, when I first broke in the business, Gary Hart, the, the great manager was doing color yeah. commentary and he wanted to help me out as well. So he said, I, you know, I think this, this kid is a uh, Barry Wyndham's cousin and just made it up on the fly. And, you know, he gave right. me a little bit of rub and, I always wondered because I was going, knew I was going to run into Barry Windham sooner or later. I didn't create it; Gary Hart did. That I was ripping off uh, Barry's name. Did you ever think that you might have heat with Sammy Steamboat? Well, as Gerald knows this, some of the old timers can be a little bit salty, right? You know, they can be a they can be a little bit of salt salty if you if you're. Uh, trying to do a family relationship or getting a rub off the name. Maybe they're thinking you didn't earn it. You know, guys were campaigning their names for 20, 25 years, you know. Um, Eddie told me not to worry about that. Uh, Sammy was a, a true good guy. And you know something, John, I never met Sam Steamboat. Really? But I, I never met him. But while I was in the Carolinas, uh, I got a letter, a letter that was sent to Crockett's office addressed to me, and it was from Sam. And in so many words, it stated, uh, and he says, like, I know you and I have never met. I've heard good stuff about you. I'm so uh, I, I am happy that you are carrying the name with respect and and you're doing well. So That's awesome. I, got a th- I got a thumbs up from him. Uh, and I, think I got to tell you, I was I came into Florida in 1969. Steamboat with uh, 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 Sammy was just finishing up his career. Yes, and and so I got to see some of those final matches. And, and what you're saying about the name when he would walk, he would he was he was you know Polynesian, so he was a real striking uh, person. You know, and he really took good care of us. His his work was you couldn't uh, he, uh, Eddie couldn't have come up with a better name and I remember some of the conversations they were kind of trying to come up with some of those those hokey uh, uh, Hawaiian names like Kotiki like Rocky like a like yeah, Mavia, yeah. like Mavia got hung with in the beginning of his career and Eddie was bright enough to see the talent Ricky uh, Richard Blood. Said, no, he said you're going to be a steamboat. You're going to be. You're going to be. I, I remember that just like it was yesterday. Right. And, and 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 then, but uh, Sammy had so much respect, not only in the ring but outside the ring by by the citizens of, of the state of Florida because he was very. Eddie was trying to build a business, John, at that time. So as Ricky can tell you, Eddie was all about community. Oh yeah, service. big time. He would have these guys out. So Sammy was one of those spokesmen because, you know, he's a guy that came from the islands and he had made it, you know. So he was a great, great spokesman. Any anytime Eddie would do any any billboard uh, signage and everything, Sammy Steamboat was the face of the company, not Eddie Graham, but Sammy Steamboat. Yeah. And then, but uh, I remember that. But yeah, uh, you could have been cold tiki, <laughs> right. <laughs> if, right? If Eddie had been there and say, had that had that vision of what what you could do there, and, and but yeah, that, that's the reason you you had that admiration so much. And none of the guys that I can recall, because I was right in the middle of it, ever held it. Most of them wanted to know if it was a shoot because you resembled <laughs> in, right. in the ring and, and outside the ring. Uh, 
the great Sammy Steamboat. Well, you know, you say that, Joe, because you wouldn't believe the number of guys that were uh, either finishing up their career or, you know, or they would come up and say, uh, boy, I knew your dad. And what a, what a great man he was, you know. And I'd have to, you know, square up with them, you know, and, and tell them the story how I got the name. And, and Eddie just billed me as his nephew. But they all – I could, a dozen times or more throughout my life, they would come up and said, man, I knew Sammy. Well, you know, I knew your dad. You know, what a great man, you know, so. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, so from Florida, there you you team up with Mike, and you guys have a pretty good run with the Hollywood Blondes. That was right. Jerry Brown and and uh, and Garvin at the time, right? So that 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 incarnation or was a Garvin, a Ronnie Garvin and, and Jerry. Brown. No, it wasn't Ronnie. It must have been Terry Garvin. Uh, Jerry Brown and um, God, you know they, they yeah. were a hot tag team. They were a hot. They tag. were they were hot. Yeah, yeah. I um, I was only there for maybe like three or four months, Gerald. I know uh-huh. we sent you out because after that little run with with Mike there, they uh, they really didn't have any anything, and then and and. And we didn't want to see you get beat every week on TV. So that's when, that's when they basically. Well, Eddie said, kept coming up to me and said, Jim Barnett wants you up in Atlanta. Well, Jim had seen you in one of those Miami shows. And of yes. course, Jimsy uh, really liked, liked what he saw and wanted you on that Atlanta TV. So um, I wasn't there my first month when I was approached with that, that uh, Eddie said, you know, Jim Barnett would like to, for you to go to Atlanta and, and um, he's going to take care of you. You know, you're going to do good there. And at that time, I said, Eddie, you know, um, I, I just come back home. I've only been back to Florida for a month from being up in Minneapolis and all that. And I said, if, if I can stay a little longer, I appreciate it. You know, and he said, don't worry about it. I'll take I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll talk to uh, I'll talk to Jim. But, you know, two or three months later, he just said, Jim's pressing on it. He said, he'd like to have you up there in Atlanta. So. Um, I was just in Florida three or four months, and then I drove up to Atlanta and started there. Hey, Ricky, and, uh, uh, during this time, when was your bodybuilding career? Because you won several trophies. And and did you ever think, you know, because uh, Pumping Iron came out, I guess, 77, right when you started? Yeah. Did you ever think about going into bodybuilding? Because uh, no, you got, no, got really I, popular at that time with Arnold and Franco. Um, no, I never thought about doing pro bodybuilding uh i started in 1979 when i went to the carolinas and it was mostly on a state or regional level never on a national level i didn't have the genetics for to be a a, a contender on a national level so uh were, but, were you doing it were you doing it but uh, kind of expand your uh, pro wrestling career or were you doing it just because it was kind of a passion and you wanted to do it on the side it was a passion i wanted to do on the side it um i I always took pride in trying to stay in good shape, uh, but I never wanted to use bodybuilding as something to further my wrestling career. You know, I just, I relied on my work rate 
to do that. And bodybuilding was just like a little side hobby, uh, maybe something on my bucket list I wanted to check off. Yeah, so. And yeah, you know, I saw an interview you did where you uh, you beat uh, Jimmy Snuka in uh, one of the finals of a bodybuilding contest, right? Where was yes. that? That was at the uh, that was in Charlotte. It was called the w- I got a picture of that hanging on the wall. I'll show you guys the WBBG Southern States uh, Championship uh, for North and South Carolina, and the judges brought Snuka and me out uh, to do a side by side because the points were so close. And uh, at the end of the night, they gave me the nod and um, gave me I got the trophy right here. I'll show it to you guys. But, uh, yeah, that was a, you know, I'm and, and through that whole time, everybody in, in Crockett promotions, uh, I, this was around 79, uh, knew that I was training to to be in that contest. But nobody knew. Snooker didn't tell anybody that uh, Saturday morning he shows up. And I said, Jimmy, but he said, yeah, he says, I'm, you know, I'm going to compete. But yeah, it, I, I just he, he was a as a lot of people that knew Jimmy, he was very much to him into his, keeping it to himself on a lot of issues. And so, uh, so he'd been training. He'd been training for the same contest. He'd been seeing you in the dressing room, but he told you nothing about it. Nothing about it. Never, <laughs> never said a word. And then you, you know. two end up in the finals. Yes. Yeah, we uh, Saturday morning prejudge, and then that evening the the big show in the evening, you know, for the pose off and pose downs. Yeah, so. did, did Crockett use that on television or anything? No, not that I know of. No, why not? I mean, that seems like something that you would want to you'd want to put on television. Yeah, you know, it, 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 and I think it would have been great PR for both me and Snook. You know, but Crockett now, nowadays, they, nowadays, they, nowadays they'd be all over it, you know, whoever whoever's TV you would have happen to be working for. Now that now, oh, they, yeah, yeah, they they'd get you posing on stage, but then also they get a lot of backstage stuff going on. The business was such a different different atmosphere back in those days, wasn't it, Rick? I mean, everything. I mean, even some of your private life was, you know, pretty much a private life. And if you were doing, right. it, I mean, you didn't know about. It. I mean, the guys, I know. I was doing coaching and, you know, they didn't don't, don't talk about it, but except here in Florida where Eddie, Eddie had everything out there, but you know, the old school, like Jim Crockett and some of those old school guys, they, whatever you did in your private life, it was, it was kept that way. Yeah. That's, and, and uh, you can see how uh, today's, today's way of promoting a guy is that, uh, I think it, it's great because it you branch out of pro wrestling into all the different avenues that this this wrestler's doing. You know whether he's a car guy, right? There's you know a lot of guys are into collecting cars, and uh, I mean, look at John Cena. I, I think he's got seventy five or a hundred cars in his place. You know, it uh, it's great. I'm a car guy too. And I I started. Uh, I did some drag racing at the Sunshine Speedway in St. Pete. And Gordon Soli used to own that, John. What's that? Gordon Soli used to own a part of that. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, it used to go down to uh, Bradenton. That's how he, he was the announcer. He was the announcer, Ricky, for Sunshine Speedway. And uh, one, of wow. the, one of the guys... Uh, Heard him announcing one of the TV production guys. Heard him announcing out there and told Eddie about him. And Eddie brought him in and tried him out. And of course, he, the rest is history. Oh wow! 
uh, look how he got started, right? Yeah. So I've got a car now that I take to the uh, drag strip up here in Knoxville. You know, the season's over now, but it's, it starts back up in spring. I got a, an 07 Mustang. It's 14, I think it's uh, 14, 15 years old. And, um, it's what, do you, what do you race? What, what distance? Uh, this, in Knoxville, it's just an eighth mile. Um, I have to go to Bristol for the quarter mile, but it's a, it's a pretty stout little, little car. Um, um, dyno died at about 805 horsepower, 805. And, um, yeah, she, she gets on down there pretty well. Uh, even though it's an 07, I surprised a lot of the guys with some of the newer Mustangs, uh, the Shelby's and, and some of the newer stuff with, what they call what the coyote motors in them and everything else. And is it one of those Jack Rouse specials? Uh, it's not, a, it's uh, the car is made by a company out of Southern California called Celine S A L E E N. It's uh it's, it's an upper tier Mustang along with the Roush's and the Shelby's. But out of those three, the Celine is probably uh, there's less of them. They don't make, as many of them the manufacturing of them is not nearly as big as the other two so uh so is, so, is the race that you're racing is it just a straight eighth mile uh yeah yeah you got you know you got your christmas tree lights and it, you know it goes you know yellow 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 green and then you you get into it and you drag somebody next to you you know you know if you get caught speeding or anything in that uh car of yours outside the track we happen to know the mayor there in knoxville he's he's a good friend of ours yeah <laughs> you know i know glenn too yeah <laughs> i know you do <laughs> yeah uh, i hope so <laughs> have you been to any of glenn's events uh when he when he does a political deal or anything or you, you, you know you uh um we we did a charity thing together okay and um uh I just saw him a couple of weeks ago at, at a uh, convention signing and I wanted to hook up with him uh, for this coming up Christmas. I said, are you doing any, any, anything like uh, maybe going to a food line and you know, where they give you know, for the homeless or something and you, you uh, they pass the tray as they walk by and you, and you, and you put some food in their trays and stuff. And he said, I haven't got anything lined up right now. I said, well, let me, he said, I'll give you a shout. And um, what I said, I'd, I'd like to join you and, and, and let's just do something where we give back to the community and, for, you know, for something like the homeless people or something. So, yeah, he uh, he said he's just been so up to his head and doing stuff. It's been so busy, especially with COVID and all that around. You know, he's, he's been he's been real busy. He's the world's biggest mayor. <laughs> you talk about you talk about not aging. I yeah. saw I saw him at uh, Undertaker's retirement or something recently, and uh, I forget what it was. And he's he's as big as he was back in the nineties. I mean, he looks yeah. he looks amazing. He's a, I, yeah. I asked him. I said, "Aren't you supposed to age like the rest of us?" Uh, yeah, he keeps his hair short, and and uh, he, he looks he looks just the same guys that you know fifteen years ago. Ricky, you you, uh, you went up uh, you went up to Atlanta, and you were yes. on that, you were on that national TV. Is that when Crockett first saw you, or Ole was booking? Was he probably doing the dual booking uh, deal at the time, right? Well, when I went to Atlanta in '76, Renesto was the booker. 
Tom Renessa, okay. Tom Renessa was the booker. And this is what Tom, he told me, he said, Ricky, he said, uh, Jim Barnett likes you a lot. And he said, uh, he said, you're going to, your debut in TV, you're going to work with Dick Slater, who was number one heel, right? He said, what we're going to do, he he said, uh, this first week on TV with Slater, you being the new guy, uh, we're going to have him go over with something, something cute. Next week, you're going to come back and work with Slater, and you're going to go over. And then the third week, we're going to come back with a rubber match, but we're going to make we're going to make an angle out of it. So uh, I was kind of excited. I said, "Wow, this what an opportunity!" You know. So first week, I worked with Slater and put him over, and um, you know, just went around the Atlanta circuit there that week. You know, wrestling maybe third or fourth match. And then uh, the following Saturday morning, um, I was looking up at the sheet on the rundown for the TV matches, and and they didn't have me matched up with with Slater. And uh, so I went to Renesto, and I said, "What is? Has there been a change? You know, understand this. I've just now been in the business maybe a year, maybe you know, maybe ten months. So." You know, you, you, you're trying to pick and choose your words so you're not sounding so, you know, offensive. So he said, uh, Renessa said, no, there's been a change. Uh, wrestling too, Johnny Walker is going to work with Slater. So, uh, you know, so I, I spent uh, 13 months in Atlanta and um, Renesto moved on. And that's when Oli, Oli came in as Booker. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You never you never got the return with Slater? Never. <laughs> never, never. You did yeah, a hell of a bunch job of crooked wrestling over. promoters. Yeah, he did a hell of a job putting him over for uh, <laughs> wrestling too. <laughs> yeah. So wrestling too, snipped that money and said, there, I'm going with Slater. You know, and, and, you know, and Walker, too, he was the top babyface there, right? Yeah, without a doubt. Wrestling, you know, wrestling, too. He was the top babyface there. So I could see where, you know, that – and. And like I said, I was there for 13 months, and that, those two guys carried on an angle for almost that whole 13 months, working with each other every night, and uh, you know, and spicing it up on TV every weekend. You know, those, those, those and they, they, those two guys drew a lot. You know, so I don't know if I felt relieved or I felt like I got backstabbed, but you know, at that point in time in your career, you just uh, you just go with the flow. And you know, work. You're just wanting to that's work. That's all. Yeah, I was happy to have a job. Yeah. I think backstabbed would be the best guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know what amazes me? I, I, I think old Johnny Walker was sitting backstage at that TV when you put Slater over that first round and saw that match quality of the match and said, I think I didn't watch your house show matches because you guys probably ripped it up at the house show match and Walker's probably sitting there. You know, I think I could make some money with that Slater. And you're right. He was a top dog there. And John, he got just about whatever he wanted when he right. asked Barnett to, to go that direction. So I he, was, you, he, I was, he was Johnny Walker, the rubber man in Florida. Uh, he, yeah, he, when I very first started in the business, he would, he would, he had been out. He was actually come to the ring and do a contortionist act. Did you know he was a contortionist too? Well, uh, I knew the reputation. That's the reason, that's the reason he was the rubber man known as the rubber yeah. man, but that, and then he would pass a hat, John, and the audience. And that's how he got his pay. A promoter wouldn't book him 
but he had allowed him to go out there during intermission to put on his act as a rubber man. And that's, that's how he got started. That's how, that's how he got started. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and he used that in, in his career to where challenges would be made to where guys would put a hold on him, and, uh, and it would be a hold that nobody got out of, but Walker, the rubber man was able to wiggle his way out of it. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah he was, For yeah, years he, was, he went he, around as Johnny Walker, rubber man, Johnny Walker. Yeah, very similar to like a, very similar to like Alexa Bliss. Remember when she did the arm bar angle, where you know she could bend her arm, you know, way back, right. and looks like it breaks your arm, and they stop the match, and you know, very same thing. Yeah. I so it doesn't happen very often because not that many people have you know stuff like that in their body that is able to move that way. Johnny could actually contort his whole frame backwards, John. Really? Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. The, the front part of it, from the waist down, would be looking forwards, and yeah. the, uh, his chest and face would be looking backwards. He can do all the weird things with his arm. I mean, it, it was amazing. But uh, when I was a rookie, I, that's how he made his living. He, you know, guys, uh, promoters wouldn't book him as a wrestler; they'd book him as an attraction. So a abdominal stretch, he could just spin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell got dizzy, I guess. <laughs> so let me, let me. NLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. There's never been a better time to refinance than right now. With real estate being so hot, your house could be worth more than ever. SaveWithConrad.com can help you use that new equity to pay off your credit cards or get rid of your PMI, saving you thousands. Interest rates are still at historic lows, but experts expect the rates to rise next year. Let SaveWithConrad.com get you the best rate you've ever had and save thousands. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket, and you won't make another payment until next year. Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. So here I here I am. I'm in Atlanta for about 13 months, and Ole's the new the booker, and he says, "You know, Ricky, you've been here, and it's it's time for you to move on." And uh, he says, uh, "I know you're under contract with Vern." So at that you know at that time, guys, I was paying 10 percent of everything I made to Vern. Uh, yeah, that's what Vern did to the kids at camp, right? He signed them. Percentage. Yes. Now, Ricky, Ricky, did he charge you for camp? And that was the the price was the ten percent. And for how long was it? Or did he charge you also when he came to camp? Well, uh, like I said, I went there in nineteen seventy five, and it was two thousand dollars. Wow. Now, uh, and you had to give ten percent for for what period of time? He called it a booking fee because then he would he would call. I bet he did. <laughs> but yeah, so that you know, being green and not knowing, you just say, "Oh, okay, that seems to be the norm." And you know, when I left Minneapolis, he said, "You're going to go back down, uh, back home to Florida, Eddie Graham." You know, so I had to pay ten percent everything I made, and then when I went to Atlanta, ten percent. So then when Oli came up to me, and he said, "I understand you're working under Vern," and uh, he said, "Let me let me call Vern up and see what he what uh, if he's got a place for you." So. He got back, Oli got back with me and he said, uh, Vern's got you going to Calgary. Hmm. So, uh, through Atlanta, um, a wrestler by the name of Dean Ho, his, his real name is Dean Gucci. Yeah, D- uh, Dean, Dean, Dean and uh, uh, Tony Greer were, they were, uh, they were the, uh, they worked as WWF partners. Right. Tag team partners, Gurria and uh, and Ho, Dean Ho. 
And uh, Dean said, uh, I got a good referee buddy up there in Calgary because Dean said, I've, I've worked at territory. Let me let me call him and ask him how the territory is doing. So he did that and he got back with me. He said, Ricky, he said, everybody up there starving. He said, then they're not making any money. And for you to drive 3,000 miles and, you know, and um, he, he said, you're not going to make any money. He said, they're not making any money. So I, I got back with Oli. And Ole got with Vern, and Vern called me up and said, uh, "You know what, you, you rookie punk kid? What the hell? You know?" He says, "I'm trying to get you a place to go." And I said, "You know, but you know why would I want to go three thousand miles when there's other territories between Atlanta and there that maybe you know I could work at least just to get by, make you know thirty five or fifty bucks a night." He said, they're not even making that up there in Calgary. And um, so his last words were to me were the book yourself. <laughs> so I, I got back with Oli and Oli uh, a week later said, uh, I got you a spot in, uh, in Carolinas. I got you a spot, you know, 250 miles up the road from Atlanta into Charlotte. So, and as Gerald, as you know, when I went went into Charlotte, the rest is history, right? Right. Uh, That's one. Hey, Ricky, before you talk about Charlotte, I want to ask you about Vern. The the, the how long were you going to have to pay that ten percent throughout my whole career? It was a lifetime. It was a lifetime commitment. That's what I understood. Yeah. Let me let me tell you this. Um, now, uh, I was in Atlanta from '76. I said uh, 1977. I went to Charlotte in March. And around 1975, Crockett, Gerald, as you remember, in 79 and 80, we were uh, we were doing trips to uh, Toronto, the Maple right. Leaf Gardens. Right. Me and Jay wrestled you and you and Jack there, right? Yeah. That so was one, one time we couldn't go because of a contract dispute. Right. So uh, I'm there in Toronto, and guess who shows up in the locker room? Vern. And. The last time I paid him my 10% was when I was in Atlanta because I felt when he said book myself and Ole got me into Charlotte, why should I be paying Vern 10% because Ole's responsible getting me here. So he says, I understand. Vern says, we're in a locker room. He says, we go up to an um, uh, um, empty uh, locker room, part of the building there. And he says, I understand you're doing real well down there in Charlotte. Main event. And um, he says, uh, I'm here because you owe me 10% for the last uh, ooh, last couple of years. And I said, and I told him the story. I said, Vern, I, I just want to refresh your memory. You told me to book myself. And I understand this 10% was a booking fee. So if anybody that should be getting any kind of money, it would be Ole Anderson because he's the one that got me into Charlotte. And I just made this name up out of the blue. At that moment, I said, and if you want to uh, carry this discussion any farther, you need to see my attorney. And and I, his last name was a word that we use in our business. And I said, his name is Robert Carney. <laughs> Bob Carney. You worked a worker. Bob right? Carney. <laughs> yeah. I, at least you didn't say it's Bob Kizarney. <laughs> no. No, yeah, he didn't talk that, you know. But... Uh, I just said, you want to take it up? Just take it up with his name is Robert Carney. He's in Charlotte. 
hell, I didn't know anybody named Carney, right? I, I just threw it out there. Well, I, I guess to my good grace, it was never pursued after that. So I never had to pay Vern the 10%. That's and, uh, just insane to me. I, I mean, I'm, obviously it's not legal, but yeah, I guess if you sign a contract, it might be. But how did the how did he get the money? So if you're booked in Atlanta, did you have to send him 10% or would he take it directly from the office? I sent it to him. So was it an honor system or did he have yes. to audit it? Yes. Yes, it was an honor system. You know, and, and in Atlanta, I was on a $300 a week guarantee. So uh, come hella high water, that's all I made was 300 bucks. You know, I could work six times. I could work seven times. I could work four times. I could work five. It was just a straight 300 bucks. So every week I was sending them $30. Wow. <laughs> John, that was like the NWA champ. They got that thirteen percent, and but they only really got three a ten percent because the three percent was automatically sent to uh, sent to St. Louis to the to the NWA. Yeah, for, yeah. What was the other ten percent? The ten percent you got the ten percent minus expenses and all, minus your airline ticket and all. That. So the explain it to me a little. The the NWA okay, champion. The NWA champion was, was on, on paper to receive thirteen percent gotcha. off the top, off the off of your building expenses. You know, it would be off. thirteen percent of the house, right? Of the house, yeah. Of the yes. house, of the yes. gross of the house, yeah. Yes, thirteen percent, no matter what it was, and but the, but the breakdown, the, the champion would receive ten percent. And the NWA would receive the other 3%. And that 3%, Sam didn't trust the wrestlers doing it. That's where Jack and Sam had their fallout of when Jack went to Japan and made that deal like Ricky did on his own. And with Baba to switch the title. But that 3% out of that 13 would go directly from the promotion that was receiving the champion to, to the NWA. At the end of the week, they just go through all the grosses. Added up seven showed three percent and send it to the send it to the NWA. That was the rules. Isn't that a little mafia ish? <laughs> no kidding. What is, the NWA <laughs> was kind of mafia ish, man. <laughs> Ricky can tell you that. I mean, it well, was, you know, and the, the politics were strange back then. It really was. I mean, it was. Yeah, you know. yeah and 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 you you could bet it. A dime on a dollar that that three percent that was sent to the NWA was never claimed. Yeah, never. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a safe bet. Yes. A lot of it was cash deals back in those days too. Don't sure. You? Uh, you know, you had no ticket master. You had no you know uh, uh, way uh, automatic tickets. They were just road tickets. So. Yeah, I'll never. A lot I'll of never shady things went on back in those days, brother. I'll never forget the. Uh, the bookkeeper there in Charlotte, um, he said, he said, every show, Ricky's got two rolls of tickets. Yeah. Two big, you know, the rolls, and they tear off, a guy would buy a ticket, they tear off a ticket and give it to you. He said, this roll here is for Crockett and for the exact amount of money, and then this roll over here is for the IRS. <laughs> and a lot of times, John, you'd see paper. Of those ticket roads, what they were all that what they were, they were old uh, road tickets that hadn't been sold that probably had 40 or 50 tickets on it, and they just kind of uh 
paperclip it in there and sell it, and it's not a sellable ticket. It's not numerically dead. So nobody ever took the, the time, especially to go through every ticket and match it with the, with the, with the other ticket stuff that was sold. You know, nobody. <laughs> that's, so, why, that's why guys like Tim White, the referee, uh, was so valuable to Vince when he would uh, do the the, the uh, live events because he was good at figuring out who was stealing money and who wasn't out of these uh, arenas, right? Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. A lot of and that guy's very valuable to a guy because a guy like Tim, you, you couldn't fool him because he had seen it all. Yeah, and then Tim would probably uh, usually collect the house too. Right, yeah, he'd always be in there when they counted it to – Ricky, Ricky, yeah, that I was, one time we're up in Toronto, and this this might have been the deal. We we're supposed to work with you, and there there was a situation over over paycheck, and and you told us take off our boots that you might not be wrestling. We we said okay, we're with you guys. <laughs> you know, we took, we took off our boots too. Waited for Ricky to solve his business. He gave us a nod. We laced him back up. Went out and ringed him 30, 40 minutes. <laughs> You know what the you know the story on that? Why no, that happened? I, I've always wondered what the story was. We were wrestling at the time. Jay and I were wrestling against this. Is the only time I ever did this. Jay and I were wrestling uh, uh, Slaughter and Canoodle. And we were in Roanoke in the afternoon, matinee show, and we had a private plane to go to Toronto. Well, when we finished the Roanoke show and we got on the private plane, it was a King Air, which was pretty top. Right. Turbo, right. turbo prop, King Air, and just, and we were in Roanoke, and the airport's down in the valley. And as soon as we were, uh, Freddie uh, Floyd, the pilot, as soon as we touched, lifted off, and we I don't know, we got three or four, five hundred feet up off the runway. I'm sitting there looking out the window, and this big puff of black smoke, and the right engine went 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 dead. And Freddie gets on the mic and he's calling the tower. He said, we're coming in. He said, we're coming in. If anybody's uh, landing, please redirect them. He says, the words I'll never forget. He said, we're falling out of the sky. <laughs> With the weight of the wrestler in the plane. And we had not gotten up high enough yet. We had, you know, full throttle. And it took, you know, both engines. So we came around and they landed. And um, this was on a Sunday afternoon. Of course, there's no mechanic. And uh, so Freddie got on the phone and he, he, he called some people he knew and a couple of pilots flew up to Roanoke and um, we were in a Lear jet. And I'll never forget, we're sitting in the jet and the pilot looks back over his shoulder at us and he said, what time are these boys supposed to be in Toronto? He said, well, we're, we're the main event. We're on last, but uh, the show just started as we speak. You know, the show had already started. So we took off, and that son of a gun went straight up in the air, put the hammers down, and we are laid back in that seat. That Learjet was wide-ass open, and we are just – and everybody got us there. Now we had the match. And as you know, Gerald, whenever you wrestled in Toronto, if you're there at the following show, you got your paycheck from the show before. Right. So Jay and I get our paychecks, and I'm looking at it, and I know what kind of money we we grew there in Toronto. Uh, we, we we almost sold it out every time we, we wrestled there, me and Jay, right? And I, I called Tony. I said, what's up with this paycheck? He said, well, um, to get you guys up here, you know how much it costs for that Learjet? I said, let me get this straight. You're, 
we're paying for that Learjet and you are writing it off, but we're, it's coming out of our pay. So I said, uh, I said, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not working. So Tony says, uh, Ricky, we got to, it was me, uh, me and Jay against you and you and Jack. He said, we got a hell of a house out there. He says, man, he says, uh, what will it take? I said, you need to, you need to give me and Youngblood, and then you also need to get to Don Carnoodle and Sergeant Slaughter at each of us a thousand bucks. And I said, you need, you need to get our money for me and Jay tonight in the locker room before we go out in the ring. And it's got to be American. Thousand dollars cash, American. Tony looked at me and he goes, Jack Tony, he goes, Ricky, where in the hell am I? And, you know, this is like, I don't know, eight o'clock at night now, nine o'clock at night. He says, where am I going to get that kind of American money cash? I said, Jack, you go in your office, you move that picture that's on the wall to the side and open up your safe. I didn't know if there was a safe there or not. I didn't, I swear to God, I didn't know. I just said it. I said, you just go up in your office, open up that safe, and you got those ribbons tied around them $100 bills, and you bring me 1000 and you bring Jay 1000 and... Um, and then you you give me two envelopes with Cranoodle and Slaughter's name on it to make sure they get their money. And he came back with the money. And then me and Jay wrestled Jack and Jerry. That's the only time I ever held up a promoter. Only time. But I just thought it was it was crooked to take it out of our pay. And yet he. I said, you and your, I said, you and your company are going to write it off, and yet the boys are paying for it. I said, that ain't right. That ain't right. So, Jerry, this is the first time you've heard this, but you were willing, you were going to walk out with uh, Jay and Dragon, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're we, we, we're going to back up. We're going to back <laughs> up our brothers here. I mean, you know, I, you know, Ricky, Ricky said, hey, I'm, I'm having some financial issues with, with Tony and I'm, I might not work or we're working against them. And I, we know Tony was, if, if they don't work, they, they're going to ask us to, to work single. They're going to ask us, they're going to ask us to go out and do something. So Jack looked at me and, and we shook our head. We're with you, Ricky. We unlaced them and took them off and sat there, sat there in a dressing room with our street clothes on until Ricky gave us the nod and we got back dressed. But yeah, we're willing to, for you know, for a brother, you know, to, well, and, and, and you know, John, good that, pay off, man. Well, that, that, outside, you know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that also people there that that also uh helped with Tony convincing him when when Jack and Gerald took their boots off. So, you know, that but that also just added the icing on the cake of boy, I better get the money to these guys so we can keep the show going. Yeah, because he's losing his entire main event now. Yes. Not just half of them, but his whole, whole main event. So, Rick, when you first got to Charlotte, that's where we kind of, you know, digressed down a, a couple of rabbit trails, which have been very entertaining. Uh, did you know right away that was the place that you wanted to be? I mean, you made such a big name there, you know, you with, with, with well, Marley and Flair and, and 
all the guys that you had such in, with, with Jay, I mean, it was, yeah. how quick did you know this was the right move? Uh, I did not. Um, I got there in March and uh, 1977 um, in June, uh, Flair and I did an angle on TV and, and it was only because of uh, he went to bat and told Crockett, he said, you got this new kid that's come in steamboat. I'd like to try and do something with him on TV, you know, and um, we did an angle on TV and, uh, and we were off and running. And, you know, and we, we, we ran pretty strong for a couple of years on and off, um, and, you know, with each other. And then uh, it was uh, like around 79-ish uh, when I decided to uh, go to tags with Jay and, and just break away from single competition. I wanted to just do something different. And, uh, and Jay and I hit it off and then, the, and the fans loved us. And the next thing you know, we're, you know, we're, we're main events as tag teams. So uh, how, how did you, how did you, uh, happen to say no, Jay was a guy cause it was a magic combination. I mean, I, hey, John, you had two, two prime baby faces that, that looked apart, worked apart and, uh, and, and the love love looking at them i mean it, it was it was a magical tag team well we uh that, that we come, just come we, you know we were doing singles at the time and we had just started riding with each other and just through conversation it just out of the blue it was nothing really planned i said maybe we ought to try being a tag team you know and i said i've been doing singles all my so far throughout my career and i you know i'd like to try to do tag team you know I always felt that if you get four good guys in the ring, um, they could outwork two guys in the ring, you know? <laughs> right. You know, uh, four good guys all on the same page with baby faces and heels. So uh, we could, I felt that you could really put on a much better and hell of a show than two single men, so two single guys in a single match. Because through the conversation with Jay and the, and, and the cars, you guys, you guys realized that your philosophy was similar and, and, you know, you kind of created that, that bond where, you know, it, it was, yeah, oh, yeah. it was a good mix. Yeah. We're on the same page. So your, your no. first, you, you guys at first run, was it against Sergeant Don or? Yes. Or yeah, and John, man, I I got I got blowed to Ricky's horn on this. This was probably the Carolinas was famous for tag teams, and this thing had come along with uh, with Sergeant Slaughter. He, I, I, Ricky can take you into the, the details, not the both of it, but he had Don Carnoodle as, as his private, and then but these two guys clicking as a baby face, and man, it, it was the greatest tag team. Uh, uh, rivalry, I think that that ever produced out of North Carolina, and that's a lot of history there. Yeah, it was uh, actually Sarge came up with the idea of bringing Don up. Don was uh, a mid card wrestler, and um, he decided that I'm going to make you like my private. And uh, you know, so I don't think Don ever won a match on TV. You know, he was he was a job guy, mid-card. And so when uh, approached 
uh, Crockett about the, the idea and he starts, uh, let me groom him and show the fans that I am grooming him and that every week on TV, he, he was getting a little better. So, you know, so it started out where Don would wrestle on TV and then, you know, he still lose and then he'd lose again the following week, but he would get a little better. And then he wrestled to a, you know, a 10 minute time limit draw his first draw on TV and then uh, it wasn't too long after that to where Cornoodle had his first win. And it was, you know, Sarge standing on the sidelines, like giving instructors, like a drill, in, a DI, you know, like a drill instructor, you know. And um, and it showed how Sarge was grooming this guy and he was getting better each week, you know. And then uh, made the challenge to Jay and I, we were the current champions. And, uh, yeah, we dropped the belt to him right on the first first time around and uh ended up chasing him and and how long did that run last with sarge and colonel um i'm going to say um uh, over two months you know as good as a tag team as you are every tag team makes mistakes uh, the, you, you trusted the briscoes at one point and that was probably a, a, your biggest mistake <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Let me let me tell you the story there. When when we uh when we finally finished up with, with Don and and Sarge, and um I think Jack and Jerry approached us and said they'd like to work with us. And yeah, we're, and, we're and, in a car ride coming back and we'd seen all that stuff and uh, we started talking, you know, we'd 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 never been we'd won all those championships, but we'd never been uh, world tag team champions or something like that. And then we could, we started, we could, we started asking you how, how you thought we could do it. You said, turn heel, but don't turn heel. <laughs> be a baby face, be a, be a heel. It was, uh, do you remember what Crockett said? He said that it would never work. Yeah. Yeah. We had, we had Ricky, we had, well, you go propose it to Crockett because he'll never buy it from us. Yeah. And uh, he said it would never work because of the big run we just had with Slaughter and Cornoodle. How the hell are we going to – the Briscoes going to follow them guys, right, uh, being baby faces. And I uh, basically I, I told Crockett, I said, you know, it's really up to Jay and I to make, make these guys – make them heels, you know. But, you know, you remember the angle, Jerry? It was uh, you guys just came out. You just came out on TV as baby faces and just issued a challenge. You know, just being like good guys. And you know, you you at the time you guys were like second in line. You were the number one contenders, even though uh, it was, you guys were baby faces. But, but it was a simple baby face on baby face challenge. It was Ricky, but you know what it was. It it also it gave the props meeting that they hadn't had you know we hadn't had that tag team world tag team championship and that's what we wanted so we made it the belts the issue more right. than we made, made you guys right yeah because we we even said that you know um even out of the ring we're friends you know and so we did we did the angle to which uh i, I think i, I think I, I think I had you in the figure four, and that uh, Jay comes in. Jack comes in. Jay chops Jack. Jack hits the ropes as the referee's putting uh, putting uh, Jay out, and Jack jumps across your uh, your legs and injures your legs. Something just really simple like that. Of course, we 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 use this used being hills that 
Jag didn't do it on purpose is because your partner chopped him and knocked him into the ropes and the momentum carried him off the ropes on the Ricky's leg. And too bad if Ricky got hurt. Gerald, that happened the second time. Yeah. The, the first time the figure four was there, uh, I think, uh, Jack came in to make a save. Or no, J, uh, Jay came in to make a save. Jack met him. Jay chopped Jack, beat him to the punch. And as the referee was trying to put Jay out and he chopped Jack, Jack took the chop and the chop actually made him fall across the legs. Right. And uh, I think the referee caught a glimpse of that, stopped the match, you know, stopped the match. So we came back out on the following week and I'm wearing a, a knee brace. And of course, you know, another challenge is, is met. It's almost the same same type of scenario to where figure four, I think it was you, Jack had me in the figure four, and it was you that got chopped by Jay. And as a and but you didn't take a bump across our legs. You took a bump in the ring. And as the referee's pushing Jay out, you gathered yourself, you looked over your shoulder where the referee was busy then you hit the ropes and you deliberately did a splash and hit and rolled out that was a deliberate you're a terrible person jerry terrible so still on my that was delayed momentum I, I, I was old and my reaction time was slow <laughs> and and it was through and and and, and it was through that they they beat us for the belts and it turned them heel they, the fans, and, and then the rest of it to make it even e easier to work with, whenever they were doing their promos, the only thing Jack would say would be like, well, we're going to meet him next week in Greenville. Tell him, Gerald. Right? He would always look at Jack and tell him. He, Jack would take 10 seconds of the first part of the promo, and then the rest of it he'd hand it off to Gerald, and Gerald <laughs> would smoke it as a smart ass, you know. Oh, my God. He would he, he, and he would get so much heat just, just because of his promos, and next thing you know, we're selling out, and we're doing just as much money as we did with Don Canoodle and Sergeant Slaughter. It's just as much said money. it never worked. That's right, and they said it would never work. <laughs> you know, Ricky, the biggest work Possibly in the history of this business was Gerald Briscoe being a babyface to begin with. Yeah, <laughs> he was a he was a natural heel when he was talking on the mic. Was a natural heel. Was. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, guys. You know him longer than me. <laughs> he never had to scream. He never had to scream and holler or nothing like that. But God, just his mannerisms and the 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 the, the smart ass in his tone, you know. Oh God! Yeah, yeah, and and a it was your old deal, you know, where you you you're not really you're not really healing. You're just telling everybody how good you are, and they're yeah, mean it and believing it, you know. <laughs> Unlike you did, JBL. That's right. Jerry and I always joke about that. Heels have to believe they're the good guys. And you know, I'll tell you this, John. That run in my career, that run with the Briscoes was the most funnest time i bet it was the most funnest time working with those guys there was many a times i would be in the corner 
with Jay in the ring, they're getting heat on him and something's happening. And I am just got to cover up because I'm laughing so hard. And my derby, my drum is just bouncing back and forth because I'm laughing so hard. It was the most funnest run I ever had working with the Briscoes. Yeah. Hey, Jerry, do you, that, that was the bottom line. You know, we had four guys out there and uh, minus mine, we had no egos in the, in the match. It was just four guys out there wanting to get a match over, you know, to trying to accomplish a goal. And I think that's the reason we had that cooperation. And I don't ever remember, no, I can't do that. Or no, I can you know, we shouldn't do that or anything from the either side, you know, if, if we, if we come up with it, we did it in the match. Yeah. It was a, it was so much fun, and most yeah. of it was called in the in, in the ring. You know, we were just okay. Ricky and Jay's going over tonight, or Briscoes are going over. You know that. You know, you're right. You know, right, uh, uh, Gerald. We Jay and I got to know each other so well that you know, in a tag, you say, okay, let's get the heat on Youngblood, get Steamboat to come back, and he does this, this, and this, and then we have the finish. Uh, we Jay and I got it to where it didn't matter who they got the heat on. If they were supposed to get the heat on me and I give Jay the hot tag, but they happened to get the heat on Jay because the timing was right at that moment to get the heat. And it, all we we just knew how to we just switched partners. You know, Jay, I would you know instead of getting the heat on me, they're getting the heat on Jay, and they're going to give me the hot tag, and I knew my role. So it made it so easy that. At that right moment, it wasn't like uh, like it happens a lot in tag teams where if you get the heat on Jay, but when you guys when we sat down and talked about it, we were supposed to get the heat on Steamboat, and then you then you got the heat on Jay, and then you go you got to figure out we got to get Steamboat in, give him a short comeback, cut him off, and then get the long heat on him, you know, and then go the way we talked, but it 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 didn't matter with me and Jay. No, it did and it's same, yeah. same same with Jack and I. It just didn't, yeah. didn't didn't matter. And that 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 you guys you guys worked worked at this team, but you know, John, this all led up to to the, the first really big show. You know that that they call mega shows. It led up to the very first Starcade, right, Ricky? And you know, yeah, kind of what how Jimmy was trying to promote the thing. Eric, you remember all those details? Yes. Well, not not uh, well. Trying to go beyond a a a, a normal territorial uh, level, trying to you know and and uh, Greensboro had been so big traditionally throughout history on Thanksgiving Day, but we want we were trying to figure it out how how we could take it to the next level. Right, and uh, have close uh, like a closed caption TV audience, you know, for the uh, the, the building next to the Coliseum to where. Uh, we if we sold out the Coliseum. They would have t- you know the big widescreen setup in the uh, convention center next to it, you know, and, and continue selling tickets for that. You know, just taking it to another level, you know. And, and yeah. what, was, what what was the time period? That was the that was before uh, Vince put the Survivor Series together to fight the Thanksgiving Day Show, right? Yeah, well, well, because that came later when when Crockett decided to try to go head up with Vince. This, this Vince didn't have a have a counter to this one here. I think uh, a couple of years later, it was when I was I was already gone away from there. But Ricky was probably still there at the time. That yeah, we're talking we're talking free, around when Vince, Vince did that free Survivor Series to run opposite the Star Cake. 
Yeah, I'm, th- well, I'm, I'm thinking 80, 83-ish. Yeah. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package. With Blue Chew, men everywhere are excited to see the postman because when your package has arrived, your package has arrived. They'll always stay first impressions are important. What about lasting impressions? It's time to get off the couch, back to work. If your tool needs an upgrade, head to bluechew.com. Guys, there's nothing sexier than confidence and Blue Chew can give you the confidence where it counts. Ricky, you guys were such a good tag team. Did you guys not just think of, say, going to New York or going to Japan, you know, continuing the run? What made you decide that uh, the tag team should end? Uh, we had we had been together four years, and um, okay. I just I made the call where I, I just I wanted to get back on a singles uh, matches and and try and focus my bid uh, for a, a world championship. You know, um, and that we just that, that that was my call. That was my call. And you had such great matches with uh, Harley Race, with 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 Flair, with Sting, with so so many so many incredible talent. Uh, what made you decide to to leave and go to New York? Dusty. <laughs> that was simple. <laughs> you had a fall. You had a falling out with Dusty, right? Over creative. It wasn't a falling out. It was just understanding how I was being used. Now, uh, I've been in the Carolinas for uh, going on eight years, which is kind of unheard of to be in a territory for that length of time. And Dusty came in as the new booker, and Dusty was a booker that also worked. And Dusty, baby-faced booker, right? So um, I was like one of the top baby-face in the territory and I was I started working with uh, Tully Blanchard and Tully Tully was the the national TV champion we had 60 minute time limits on the main event but since it was a TV belt it was only up for grabs for the first 10 minutes like 10 minute match on TV so uh, he, he, he put me with with Tully who had just which is brought in by Dusty, and then um, I'm wrestling Tully, and uh, the 10 minutes are up, and I would go over, but I would beat Tully like in 12 or 15, but I would go home with the win, and he'd go home with the championship. It was after 10. So then they came back after a couple of weeks of that, and they, they extended the championship to 20 minutes. So 
I'm working with Tully every night, both in North and South Carolina and Virginia. And I go over in 21. He goes home with the championship and I go home with the win. Right. And so every, every week the people, they see Tully on TV doing his promos with the TV belt. And every week they, they know that I've got a few, he's got a feud going on with steamboat and, but every week he's still the champion. That means Ricky hasn't beat him or can't beat him because he's still, he's still the champion every week. And so we had a big show in Greensboro and Dusty booked himself with Tully and he goes out there and beats him in eight minutes and becomes the NWA TV champion. Not the dream. So then uh, Dusty gets with me and he brought Nikita in. Now, this is Nikita's in his first year, um, Nikita Koloff. And he says, I want to I want to create an angle with you and Nikita. And so on TV in Spartanburg, um, I'm working with a job guy. I go over and then what was planned was uh, walking back to the locker room down the aisle. I would turn around and wave at the fans and Nikita would come out and give me his Russian sickle uh, clothesline. Which was his finish to create an angle. He jumped me from behind. Well, uh, you know, he was, he, you know, he, Nikki at the time, you know, was like 280, man. And he was, he was pumped, you know? And so uh, I get the win. I walk down the aisle, I turn around and I wave at the fans and I get this clothesline from behind and it looked like my head went up into the third row of the upper bleachers, you know, God, I said, Oh my God, I never felt a getting it getting shot like that before and uh, but on the way home I started thinking you know this is Dusty Rhodes the uh, the American dream in uh, USA and I, I see the writing on the wall to which uh, I'm gonna go through the territory like I did with Tully and make Nikita look good who's a Russian and then it's going to branch off to where it's going to be Nikita, the Russian against Dusty Rhodes and USA, red, white, and blue. So um, this was 1985. And I, I went into the office and I said, Jimmy, I said, I've been here for eight years. And I said, I appreciate you all you've done, but I, I think it's time for me to go. And um, that's when I went to Vin went to work for Vince. Did and, Jimmy try to, to sure. talk you out of it? Who did Jimmy try to talk you out of it? No, no. And that's funny. He, he, no, he understood, he understood where, where, I, where I was coming from. And because he knew how Dusty, you know, was going to, was going to use me. And he appreciated all that I did for the company for all those years. What's that? Had you had pre-conversation with Vince did, when you went in or was it? No. Just, you're just rolling the dice. Say, I'm going to tell Jimmy I'm gone. Yes. And it wasn't a week later, George Scott, who was the booker for, for, for Vince, that uh, I got a call from George. He said, I heard, I heard you gave your notice. You know, I've been working, you know, at that time, um, almost 10 years without any time off at all. No vacations, no nothing. And I was looking forward to a couple of months off after I gave my notice to, to Crockett and Dusty. And, uh, God, it wasn't but maybe a, a two or three weeks later that uh, I was I was up in Connecticut talking to George and Vince and going to start working with the WWF. 
Well, you know, you had the experience with George, so you knew you knew George wasn't going to give you no time off once you got booked there. <laughs> no, no, he no short matches here. Yeah, but you know, it was. Uh, so did you went up there? Was when was the dragon conceived? I mean, what when did that come in? You went up. Uh, you know, Vince was kind of uh, stuck on giving wrestlers their names. So that he could trademark them and own the name. And when I went up there, uh, I've been in the business for almost 10 years and the Ricky Steamboat name was pretty established. So Pat Patterson was there. We're at Vince's house and we was in a roundtable discussion. And um, I guess they, the feeling I got is one that added something to it. Add something to Ricky. Ste I could keep Ricky Steamboat, but let's add something to it. So. Uh, I was a big, I took Taekwondo as a kid. And so that's how I started implementing some of this martial arts stuff that I was doing in the ring. And I was a big Bruce Lee fan. And uh, they had a movie. It was a movie like Return of the Dragon with Bruce Lee or something. And that discussion came up. And so they said, there it is, the dragon. You know, you could put it Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, or you could put Ricky Steamboat the Dragon, or you could put it in the front. You know, it, it no matter wherever you, you put it, it, it works. So it was just through a roundtable discussion. Um, just prior to going to Vince, I had already trademarked the name Ricky Steamboat and uh, owned the rights to it um, only, only in wrestling-related events. And uh, as soon as I left the house and I was at the airport, I called up my trademark attorney. I said, you need to trademark the dragon for wrestling. Before, before, before Vince. Did so, you get it? I got it. Yeah. So, <laughs> Did um, Vince ever say anything to you like, uh, "Okay, you got me"? Yes. Two <laughs> two weeks later, I'm doing TV. First TV. We're passing the hallways, and he goes, uh, "You make me do it." I, I I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, "We trying." You got the you got the rest of the dragon. I said, well, you know, I said just just business, Vince, just business, you know. Right. No, and the rest of Steamboat and the Dragon. Only in wrestling related uh, venues. <laughs> and what did he say to you after that? Did he, did he say did he like shrug his shoulders like well done or was he hot? No, he didn't didn't say anything. Didn't say anything. <laughs> and so when he when he get in there with the dragon and then the, the lead up to Savage coming up. I don't want to jump ahead too far, but the lead up to Savage and, and the match. Yeah. Uh, did You didn't have much interaction with Savage before that, did you? None. Uh, None. Uh, we did the angle in December, end of November, December um, of 86, to which uh, uh, he jumped me and left me laying. Then he came off the top rope with the announcer's bell on my throat. And um, so we didn't really have a match match. And um, so I'm doing these little venues, uh, these little skits on TV with a, thro a throat specialist trying to get my voice back, trying to be able to talk. The big question is, am I ever going to be able to come back to, to wrestle? Um, you know, a lot of times before a big event, a pay-per-view uh you, you work with the guy a little bit to get some what i call like a, 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 some tune-up matches under your belt 
before the big pay-per-view, you know? Sure. And and so, you know, the WrestleMania 3 in March, so around February, I went to Vince. I said, is Savage and I going to have any uh, any tune-up matches, you know, get, get, get a chance to hook up with each other? You know, I don't know his pace. You know, I, I don't, you know... You know, I work with Ric Flair, and and he's he's certainly different than working with a Greg Valentine. You know, everybody has a everybody has a different pace, right? So, and especially with this being a mania, you know, the third WrestleMania, and I, you know, they said, no, you're gonna make your you're gonna make your debut at WrestleMania three. So, I got with Randy, and I said, uh, you know, we're not having any matches or anything, and we haven't even touched really. Um, so I was able to get back out on the road and when Savage would be in the ring, uh, I would just walk out to the ring before the match would start and point at Savage and say, I've got my eyes on you for WrestleMania three so that all the fans in the building could see that and then just turn right around and, and walk back to the locker room. And it was those those opportunities that after the show I would meet up with Randy at his hotel and we start um, putting this mask together, you know, just uh, trying to do it on a gut feeling. You know, he, I said, uh, I said, Randy, what kind of story do you think we ought to tell? Well, well, I think since I came off the top rope on your throat, maybe throughout this match, you try to try to go after my throat. You know, redemption. And um, I said, you know, you know, I said, Randy, that makes perfectly, you know, good sense. I said, but I think that's all the fans would 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 know that that Ricky's going after his throat. You know, Ricky's going after his throat. And so he thought for a moment, and I said, well, 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 Dragon, what what kind of story do you? I said, I think we just should make go out there and just blow the roof off the place and make it a championship match. Just make it a championship match. And so we started putting to get this, this match together. And, you know, for me back then, I uh, I kind of felt that an average match would have about seven or eight false finishes, you know, throughout. That seemed to be the norm. Seven, eight, nine false finishes throughout, you know, the match. And uh, we started putting this match together and we came up with like 20 false finishes. And I said, man, we got, I said, I said, I don't know about you, Randy, but I got to write this stuff down, you know, I, I, and, and to remember each one consecutively, false finish number one, number two, number three. Now you have to false finish number 14. What's 15? Six, you know, remember them on the, on the, on the get go, you know, right. You know, so uh, that's what made it different was uh, I think I, I felt, I said, now I feel like this is a championship match because you're trying to keep the belt. I'm trying to beat you for it. And uh, that's what a championship match is all about. You know, we had 20 false finishes. Ricky, you guys changed the business. That changed because there weren't false finishes, you know, leading championship matches then, you know, one after another like you guys did, you know, leading up to where every false yeah. finish looks like the championship is either being retained or being lost. Did you guys – at the time, think, hey, we're going to put a ton of false finishes in here because the story we're telling is we're trying to win the championship, which seems really basic, but a lot of people don't get that because they get lost in matches sometimes. Right. Well, um, 
we wanted to, uh, we want, I wanted to make it a championship match. And then, um, we, we started hearing the numbers coming in, like how many tickets sold at the silver dome, you know, 40,000, 50,000, 60,000, you know, 70 to 80, then, you know, it ended up with like 93, 94,000. Right. And then the buy rate, you know, for the pay-per-view, um, was coming in and, uh, Jim Barnett was, was letting me in on that. And he said, Ricky, he said, the, the viewing audience that are buying this show at, at home is off the hook compared to the first two WrestleManias, you know? So I, I just said, Randy, I said, um, you know, uh, let's go out there and steal the show. I mean, let's, 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 uh, wait, I didn't say steal the show. I said, let's have the match that of the night, you know, basically let's have the match of the night. So, that's that's that was our goal to go out there and have the match of the night, not knowing, you know, we're going up against our two the two biggest icons in the business with Andre and Hogan, right? Two biggest guys in the business. And uh, I remember going to Andre and saying, are you, are you guys doing anything special that out of respect, because they were the main out of respect, are you guys doing anything that we need to stay away from, you know, um, you know, with you and Hogan? Um, he's, he's, did you know, uh, he said, my back, uh, you know, my hips, you know, we're going to do bear hug. So I, I just did it out of respect for Andre as, um, sure. you know, so it left the door, it left the door wide open. And, uh, I went to Savage and I said, everything we got written down, everything that we talked about, we got, we got carte blanche to, we can, we can roll it. Ricky, it's it's two completely different mindsets. So you had the incredible matches, say, with Harley and with Flair, which I, I doubt you guys probably talked over anything. And then with, with Randy, who's notorious for, for wanting to have everything written down, a perfectionist. And yeah. Terrific in the ring. And you come across with one of the greatest matches of all time. A lot of people say it is the greatest match of all time. But you had to remember so much. Did you enjoy the day? And did you enjoy the moment in the ring, you know, thinking there's 93,000 people around you? Did you get a chance to look around or, or were you so enraptured in having to memorize 20 finishes that you didn't really get to enjoy the moment? Very true. Very true. I was, you know, once we got the match down on, um, we wrote it down on these yellow legal tablets and we had about 250 steps. Step number one. <laughs> Step number one, I said, Randy, we don't have to write down step number one. Write it down, Dragon, write it down. <laughs> step number one, lock up. <laughs> lock up. I said, come on, we don't have to write it down. We're going to do it. He said, write it down. So we, we, about 250, and then we got it comprised down to about 160 steps, 160. So once we got the match written down, um, uh, whenever we ran into each other leading up to the big show, I would quiz him. I said, okay, step number 32 is this, this, and this. Tell me the rest of the match. Well, number 33 is this, this, number 34 is this, number 35, you know, and then he would quiz me. So we just keep bouncing back and forth. Wow. The day of the, the, day of the show, I'm walking around with just going through the match in my mind. Step number one, step number two, you know, just talking to myself. I was so freaking stressed. It was, you know, and then, uh, and then I'll never forget they, uh, 
they they took us down in these uh, carts from the you know from the gorilla position the gorilla position down to the to the ring was they took us down on these carts and um, I'll never forget when I first came through the curtain and saw ninety three thousand people it was like holy it was a moment and but then um, I sort of just zeroed in on the ring and, and just focused on the ring and just let everything else just be like back background noise you know background noise and um i'll never forget after the 20 false finishes and the 21st one was the one two three i'll never forget where i laid on my back i looked up at the silver dome at the great top and i said it has been it is done <laughs> it is over i was so relieved i was it was so it wasn't fun it, it was stress to the nines, more more stress than every match, any match I've ever been involved with. Yeah. Unbelievable. Hey, did you feel like I know you two guys have been in some some great matches, but you, you know how it is when you, when you're in a match and things go are going really well, and, and at some point, at least I would think, okay, if I could just not screw this up, this is going to be a really good match, whether it's a house show, pay per view, whatever it is. Did you know about say eight minutes in? This son of a bitch is a classic. No. I, but I still got to remember number 72 through 151. And just if I can just not screw it up, we're going to have something that people are going to talk about forever. Did you feel that way that the, no. it was working? No. So focused on the next step, the next number. Um, there were, there, I will say there were two times uh, Savage had a flat line. And I had a flat line. <laughs> Randy says, Frank, uh, I'm lost. Which words? And I would tell him, you know, okay, we're, we're doing this. He said, okay, I got it. I got it. And then we go on with the match. And then all of a sudden I said, I said, I'm flatlining, Savage. I'm flatlining. What do we do? And he, he would tell it to me. And then uh, I said, okay, I got it. So we had two moments in the match to which uh, we, both, we both were lost for uh, a second. And then we carried on and went, went through the rest. When did you realize it was a classic? Um, well, it was it was kind of growing on me uh, after the match. Uh, all all the guys and everybody coming up and saying, "What a match!" You know, "What a hell of a match!" You, what a show! Vince was saying, "You know, what a show you guys put on for the company tonight." You know, and uh, um, it, it, and even the old timers like Gorilla Monsoon and uh, Arnold Scolan, you know. They would come up and, and they'd pat us on the back, and you don't see that very often from them, you know. It, uh, you know, they come and say that was a good match, you know. But I mean, really putting it over. God, how do you? How did you guys remember all that? You know, God, you know what a match. So it, it started that night after the show, you know, where they had the big party afterwards, and you're sitting at your table and stuff, and throughout the whole night, fans, the wrestlers just kept coming up and just praising us on our match. What did Savage say after the match? Uh, I honestly did not see him until uh, at the party, afterwards party. And he was also so relieved. You know, I don't, he was just so relieved like me. I think I might've started up the, the conversation where I'm glad it's over. You know, it, it was, it was, it was, it was it, so stressed out. Lanny Popo told me um, 
And he and Lenny just maybe had told me this about five years ago to where Randy um, felt that he could top it. He could he could top the match working with with somebody. But what he said with all the guys that followed us, he was so disappointed because he could never never top it. He could he said he never could was able to to pull a better match out with with um, whoever he worked with. You know, and he and he worked with Hogan and he worked with Ultimate Warrior, you know, and he he he, he but he it was something that he felt he could do, but was disappointed because he didn't and he, he couldn't. Well, there wasn't many Ricky Steamboats out there to, to do it with. <laughs> he mentioned two guys. Their best night, they, they weren't going to be able to be Ricky Steamboat. Yeah, well, yeah, I, you know, it's a, we all took a lot of pride in our work, you know. We, that's, uh, well, Ricky, what's the answer? Because you guys had what some people call the greatest match of all time, certainly one of the greatest matches of all time. Everybody puts it in that category. Uh, and you also had some incredible matches uh, with Flair, with Race, with Sting, with with so many different guys. One where you called everything on the fly, and one where you called almost nothing on the fly. Yeah. Both, both are classics. So what's the answer? <laughs> you know that John in its own right when you put together a match and you're going on your gut feeling um, not knowing not knowing the outcome uh, um, and but ending up having a great match alright so you have that and then you have one to where you go into I don't care how many times I worked with Ric Flair to 60 minute broadways and the only thing we went in was the finish, which was maybe the last two minutes of a 60-minute Broadway, right? You're going to wrestle through, but you set up a bunch of false finishes. Um, which is the better match? Um, if you put together a match, and which I've seen a lot today, but if the flow of the match and the fans aren't buying it and they're sitting on their hands, but you continue to go through with a match that you put together. That's not good. If there's a match you call on the fly, I'll give you an example. I did, a, I did a, um, an angle with Barry Windham and I was doing a promo and he came up and hit me in the back of the head with a chair in the middle of the promo. And I'll tell you a funny part. Uh, he had the chair flipped around the wrong way. Instead of hitting me in the back of the head with the flat side, he hit me in the back of the head and caught me with the edge of the chair and split the back of my head open. I went down, he jumped on top and he starts punching me. And all of a sudden this pool of blood is starting to go around on the floor behind my head. And all of a sudden he goes, you know, you know he says, uh, he starts off with like, don't you talk to me like that. Don't you talk, oh my God, I'm sorry, Ricky. I'm sorry, Ricky. I'm sorry, Ricky. <laughs> but um, we went off of that angle, and I was being a very aggressive babyface because I wanted redemption, right? I wanted to get even, but, you know, we're working the arm drag routine, the old Ricky Steamboat arm drag routine. And um, about eight minutes in during my shine, I looked at Barry. I said, Barry, they ain't buying this shit. They're not buying it. They're sitting on their hands. 
And uh, what he says, Richie, what do you want to do? I said, get some heat. Let's get some heat going right now. So on the fly, we changed changed it, go right to heat. And the next thing you know, the, start, the fans are starting to rumble now. Okay. And now they're waiting for my comeback. They're waiting for redemption that way. But if we would have sat down in the locker room and put it together A to Z, we would have, you know, kept going with the flow. The match would have ended up being a big dud. But midstream, we were able to, to change it and go a different direction. And it ended up being turning out pretty darn good. So. Right. Uh, Ray, I don't want to. Obviously, we don't want to keep it forever. I could ask you about so many things, but I do want to ask you about. Uh, I saw Bruce Pritchard do an interview uh, recently about when they took you down to Florida to the guy who came from Coney Island, uh, the, for lack of a better term, the freak show, the fire, the fire breather, to teach yes. you how to teach you how to breathe fire, and he's yeah. on face on fire as he's teaching you how to breathe fire. You had to be thinking, Bruce, what are you doing to me? <laughs> at that time well you know the uh, Vince wanted me to learn how to blow fire and um, Bruce was being sent down uh, just you know being from the office to oversee it and uh, I found out earlier that uh, they, they went to Barnum and Bailey and their, their fire breather uh, rejected it because he didn't want to give away his secrets you know circus right so uh, they got, got, a, got a whole guy named Brian LaPalme, and he had like, uh, it's like one of those little parking lot carnivals. And uh, we're standing in the parking lot, and the, the, big, the big top, the big tent, it was not fully uh, put up yet. But Brian LaPalme, it was, and he was a fan. He was a wrestling fan. He was so excited to show me. So he, uh, and he used kerosene. Uh, filled his mouth up with care. But he told me, he said, Ricky, if you ever do it outside, hold your torch up and you look at the flames and make sure that the wind is blowing the flames away from you so that the wind is always at your back. So I okay. So he, he fills his mouth up with kerosene. And just as he get, takes that torch and he gets ready to blow it, the wind shifted and the wind was blowing in his face. So he blew the, the kerosene went into his face, and now I see this guy running around the parking lot with his face on fire. <laughs> and, and, I, and that's who Bruce got to teach. Too bad it wasn't Pritchard. Too bad it wasn't Pritchard. And I looked at I looked at Pritchard, and I said, you, "I said you now." Brian Lapalm told me that he's been been doing this circus act for ten years. I said, "You see that ten year veteran running around with his face on fire?" I said, "You call Vince up, tell him, and right now I'm telling I ain't doing it." I'm not doing this. And so Brian, he came back and his face was a, was rosy red. And he said, no, 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 everything's okay. It's just, it's just like a real bad sunburn. It's just, you know, superficial, real bad sunburn. He said, um, um, I, I just want to, uh, I, I want you, I want to teach you. So we started off with little shot glasses and then we ended up, uh, and then we finished that day. I came back the next day and I, then I started doing cupfuls uh, inside the tent because the big top was finished and uh, learning how to blow fire that way. But there was there was a moment to which I was watching a 10 year veteran fire breather running around with his, his eyebrows were gone. His <laughs> scalp was burnt halfway back to the middle of his head. <laughs> yeah, the next morning we showed up for. Uh, 
for round number two, and he was living in like one of those little Scotty trailers that you tow behind your car, a little trailer. So I knocked on I knocked on his door, and he showed up. He had all these these huge water bubble blisters on his face, and uh, and he and he started popping them, and and, it, and and he and he was laughing. You know, he he said, "Oh, I just saved it so I could show you." You know, I just wanted to get a laugh out of you, and then you know all these big water bubble blisters. What was Bruce saying? <laughs> he didn't say anything. His mouth was down to his his jaw had dropped down to his knees when he saw the guy running around with his face and came back with no eyebrows and half his scalp burned off. Bruce didn't volunteer to do it first, right? Oh no. Uh, uh, no. Because you know you to talk to Bruce about it. Well, I, I I had to show Ricky how to do it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Ricky, you 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 were a babyface your entire career, and you worked with the greatest heels in the business. Yeah, like Rick Rude to me is always that was always the epitome. You know, that, John, John, real quick, one of my you know everybody talks about WrestleMania three. They talk about uh, the trilogy matches I had with Flair, and, you know, the one in Chicago when I won the championship and all that. Third match on my list, and I've um, I've had close to five thousand matches. The third match on my list is the one with Rude. It was Bash at the Beach. Iron Man match to where you had a 30 minute time limit and um, the guy with the most falls in the 30 minute would be declared the winner. Um, that is, that is a real close third of all my matches. And then of course, and then I divide the category up, you know, going into with Jerry and Jack and the tags, that was the most funnest uh, period in my uh, wrestling career where I really enjoyed my work and I really enjoyed the work I was the guys I was working with but that was a period in time to which nothing could go wrong and it is always a going away with a great good feeling and a pat on the back and saying what a what a show and and we had so much fun doing it that's what Jay and I would talk about on the way home you know but uh, that match with Rick Rude Iron Man uh, 30 minutes, uh, we designed it to which uh, he had four falls and I had one. I was down four to one and there was like six or seven minutes left out of the 30 minutes. And even the announcers were saying, well, you know, Steamboat's down four to one. There's only six minutes left. There's no way. But the way we orchestrated and I'm making a comeback, now it's four to two, four to three. Oh, I tied it up four to four. And then I pull out the fifth fall with like 20 seconds left, you know, to 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 win the Ironman. But it's it's um, it's just the way we told the story. And, you know, John and Jerry, I, I um, storytelling as we knew it, uh, I don't see a lot of in today's matches. This uh, being able to go out there and tell a story. Yeah, as Steve Kern says, it's more movement than emotion. You know, yeah. and you, you, they have a lot of movement and very, very talented, but you don't see a lot of emotion. You see it out of a few guys, you know, that have been around right. for a while and some of the guys that just inherently somehow have it. But for the most part, you, you don't see the emotion. You had so many big moments full of emotion, you know, winning the championship. Uh, the tag team with Jay, the 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 match itself at WrestleMania three, the times with Rude with with Jake the Snake was so many yeah. great. You, you wrestled the best, and you were the best for so long. 
how, how do you classify these moments in your own mind? Is it all just kind of segmented like, hey, that was a good time with Jay. This is a good time with singles. Or do you have like a list of that was my greatest moment or my top three? There's, there's, no, um, they're all up there. I mean, you could put them in a hat and pull it out and, and say, yeah, that was for me. That was that was my my greatest time. But I always believed this old saying that my father taught me. And he said, son, you're only good as a tool that you have to work with. And that was a carpenter's saying. You know, a carpenter is only good as a tool that he has to work with. And I said it in my Hall of Fame speech, that that phrase. And I said, I had the best tools in the business to work with in reference to the heels that I work with. I work with the best heels. So um, that that was a, something that always stuck with me that you're only good as the tool you got to work with. So I'm in the ring with a five star heel. I'm going to have a five star match, you know. How? Before we, how how was rude? I knew Rick a little bit when I came in WWE, and I, I just thought yeah. the world of Rick as a heel. Uh, how was how was rude when 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 you worked with him? Very open, you know, for suggestions. Um, easy to work with, you know. Uh, there was a, I think we were working in Toronto, and there was a cage match. And uh, he went to suplex me and I block, he said, block it. And then he turned, turned us around. He said, now suplex me and get my legs hooked up on the top of the cage. So I got him in a, a suplex position. And as I raise him up, he hooks his legs up on the top of the cage behind, you know, behind the knees. And now he's hanging upside down. And he's saying, go hit the ropes and come back with a cross body. So I go hit the ropes, come back with a cross body. He's got his back against the cage, right? He's hanging upside down. And uh, do it again. So I do it again. One more time. And just as I came for the third time, he does a sit-up. So I crash and burn in the cage. Hit, I hit the cage and I slide down. Now I'm laying in between the cage and the ring apron. He lowers himself down and looks down at me. He says, I got you. I got you. <laughs> I got you. That's great. But but that that wasn't called in the locker room. That wasn't put together. That some, he said on just on the fly, and I never seen it done before. But he, he, I guess he figured that he could do it, you know, and 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 go to suplex him, and he'd hook his legs up there in the top, and then so I guess he had that he had that spot lined up, and didn't know if it was going to work until actually we were in the match. <laughs> to be a veteran when Rick came along there in the Carolinas and I saw his, his first few matches and it was so amazing how this guy just developed and kept on developing. He had a mindset a lot like yours, Ricky, where he wanted to be the best. He knew that was in his head and he knew it was in his ability. And this guy, every night we traveled with him, he would just bleed my brother and I for information. He, he was constantly trying to learn. So. You you did you you had a who's who of a of, of opponents there and uh, and man uh, we were blessed to come along at that time. Yeah, that was a um, that was a golden period in our business. I think Jerry, you know, it, uh, starting from uh, 
early eighties, all the way up through maybe mid nineties or something like that. And then, then you had the attitude period, right, John? Yes. Wonderful period. Yeah. Attitude period took over and, uh, and, and they slammed, they slammed dunk that, that uh, great business during that time too. During that Ricky, attitude. Man, uh, you know, we, we've had you on a man and we, we've heard some great stories and I've known you forever and I've heard some, some, uh, stories that I hadn't heard before. We really appreciate your time. I, I know, I know it, it, it's tough to sit there. And it, the fun part was uh, you, you, me, and John had to figure out how to get on this thing today. So we appreciate <laughs> all your time. You have a great weekend, man. And go volunteers. Yeah. Go volunteers. Yeah, but they had a better season this year than last. Rocky Top. If not, if not, complain to the mayor of Knoxville. He maybe he can do. So. He should be playing right now for the Volunteers. He looks uh, as good as in a re-election coming up for him, John. Didn't he say he had a re-election campaign? It is. I'm not sure when it is, but he does have a re-election come up, and that's when he's term limited out, where he can he can only run one more time. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, you guys. Hey, Ricky. Thank you so much. Appreciate okay. it, man. You. Always been a fan, been a longtime friend of yours as well, and I appreciate both very, very, very much. And thanks for coming on the, the show and telling us to talk about so many incredible times of our history. Uh, you know, this, Jerry, this, been looking forward to this, so thank you. This is the first and only Zoom that uh, interview that I've I've done. <laughs> well, thank you. We got the dragon on. That's it. Okay, thanks, you guys. Check us out on Cameo. Get a cameo from the wrestling god or Oklahoma's favorite son. Two WWE Hall of Famers will send you a cameo, a message, a Merry Christmas, whatever you want. And don't forget, boxagimmicks.com. The merch coming from the Briscoe and Bradshaw show. It's flying off the shelves. (laughs) 